2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. I'm
3: John Fort, and here's what's ahead. Will the February rally continue? Stocks are off their session highs. After setting some new highs earlier, we're going to take a look at what could derail momentum and where to put your money to work right now. Plus, big tech's battle shifts to North Dakota. Apple's ch- chief privacy engineer says a bill being voted on in the state and less than an hour from now could destroy the iPhone as we know it. The state senator who introduced that bill is going to join us live ahead. And a new Reddit target, Wall Street's plumbing is clogged. And would you wear a Facebook watch? That's all ahead in Rapid Fire. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu's got some numbers. Dom. John, as
0: you know, I'm an analog watch guy, I have been for years. I'll probably not be giving that up anytime soon. But anyway, let's take a look at the markets right now because we've been losing a little bit of steam. Yes, it's generally positive, but technology has been a little bit more of a laggard in just the midday trade. The Dow Industrial is up about 75 points. You can see here the S&P at one point at the highs was up 16 points. At the lows, down roughly 11 points. You can see they're hovering right around unchanged in the middle of that daily trading range, and the Nasdaq underperforming down about two-tenths of 1%. One place that continues to be a real outperformer as of late has been the financial sector. Unloved for the better part of 2020 and even prior to that. Take a look at the Spider S&P Bank ETF, ticker KBE. Up 2% today, rising interest rates on the long-term side playing out in part of that story. But take a look at this chart. Right around this level is the highest level that we've seen all the way to September of 2018 for this bank ETF that just goes to show you, and by the way, this move up, up, up higher here year-to-date basis, on a year-to-date basis, this stock is up 16%. The S&P is up roughly 5 so keep an eye on those financials, especially the banks. And then check out these stocks. Earlier today, we did hit those record highs in the market. Take a look at Microsoft, now a little bit lower, J.P. Morgan Chase, Caterpillar, Estee Lauder. Technology, financials, industrials, consumer staples, each of these stocks, the reason why they're all the same, they all get one big yellow star. They all hit record highs at one point in trading today. So, John, a very interesting market narrative bringing out here, coming out with some of these sectors. We'll see if that trend continues to play out amidst these record highs. I'll send things back over to you.
3: Don, that is the question. Stocks kicking off a new trading week with those all-time highs. And we have the market now facing what would be a 4 straight week of gains in the VIX which measures market volatility briefly dipped below 20. So can anything derail this rally? Joining me now are Jeff Krumplman, chief investment strategist and director of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors and Andreas Garcia Amaya, CEO of ZOE Financial. Um, guys, good afternoon. Jeff, you think probably this continues higher, though we could see a correction?
4: Yeah, I I think that uh, while as in 19 and 20, we were kind of outrageously bullish and looking for double-digit returns as a base case. Here, I think returns might be a little more modest, but positive. Uh, 6 to 13% is kind of the range that we have set for returns for the S&P 500 this year with a fairly bullish uh, backdrop with a decent economy, rising earnings, a very good uh, earnings season so far with good outlook and low interest rates. That's a pretty good cocktail. That said, we had such a, a rally last year, and there are enough wall of worry items out there that we wouldn't be surprised to see a correction even on the order of 10 to 20% and some disruption, not unlike the little winter storm we've got going on right now. But <laughs> the definition of a correction versus a bull market top is it's over before you know it. Well, And uh, so steady, steady the course, stay with it is, is what we would say.
3: Well, Andres, what, what really could be a problem here though is it if the stimulus doesn't come in as large as investors are hoping i mean it's hard to find anybody who thinks that things are headed down for for a a long time now and that in a way is its own worry
5: yeah i think uh predicting human psychology and how people are going to react is is really difficult uh when when the best way to think about it is what's the current narrative right so the current narrative is uh, what's the positives? The fiscal stimulus, you know, being 1.9 trillion would be better uh, for the markets. Uh, earnings, wh- wh- which was mentioned earlier, 80% of companies have reported better than expected earnings. That's the best that the data has shown since the data began for for facts that uh, well over 15 years ago. Uh, and then there is the rollout of the vaccine, right, which also is looking a little bit better than expected, even just from. Uh, from a couple months uh, back. So those are the three things that I think, uh, if the story doesn't change there, uh, the narrative doesn't change there, uh, I think it's very hard for the skeptics to win out. And the skeptics being, well, look at valuation, right? Mm Valuation is very expensive.
3: Yeah, Jeff, what does discipline look like in a portfolio in today's market? I mean, bonds don't do what they used to do. Is it that mix between growth and value? What does international exposure mean when different geographies are recovering from a pandemic at different rates?
4: Yeah, so we, we think a, a nice blend of both growth and value is important rather than trying to be heroic and call, hey, we're off to the races and it's all about cyclical recovery. Uh, which would benefit old economy stocks? We just don't see it that way. We think growth, and you don't have to go to Fang to do this. There's some great secular growth names and technology uh, that ride the five G wave. Um, you know, just automation, AI, cloud, that kind of thing. That is non-Fang. And then in the cyclical area, you have some beautiful names. Uh, FedEx is a good example of one that rides the e-commerce wave, uh, but also gives you that cyclical recovery. So we think. Balance is very important, and it comes down to three things that we think drive stocks, earnings, rates and inflation, and P.E. multiples. And uh, those three areas, you can get crabby about valuation, but at these low level of rates, they look pretty darn attractive. And you couple that with good fundamentals on these stocks I'm talking about, um, and we see plenty of value still out there uh, within individual names.
3: Andres, we're in the first hundred days of a Biden administration, and one of the big question marks I had is how much of a hang up this whole impeachment uh, and trial was going to be. It appears that the Senate is getting out of that or has gotten out of that without uh, kind of miring the Biden agenda. To what degree is that bullish for stocks? Or to what degree does that mean, well, now an agenda gets to move forward that some investors are going to have concerns about in terms of re-regulation and some other things?
5: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think the best way to look at it is nothing happens in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is for the Democratic Party to be able to move their agenda forward, for instance, on the tax front, the economy has to be in a much better place. If not, they just won't get the votes right? So nothing happens in a vacuum. And from that perspective, if some of those aspects of the agenda move forward, because the economic background is very strong, because corporations are doing really well, that might actually overwhelm, right? The positives might overwhelm the negative of, of, you know, for instance, tax rates.
3: Okay. Well, we will continue to watch that, of course. Thank you, Jeff Krumplman and Andres Garcia Amaya.
4: Thank you.
3: Also, you can read more about why the VIX dropping below 20 might be a setup for more buying. Head on over to CNBC.com slash pro for that. Meanwhile, North Dakota is setting up to be the next battleground for big tech. In less than an hour, the state Senate is voting on a bill that would prohibit Apple and Google from requiring apps to use their payment systems, among other things. Joining me now is North Dakota State Senator Kyle Davison, who introduced the bill last week. Mr. Davison, thank you for being with us. So tell me, what is the aim of this and what happens to Apple if they don't comply? Can they just not sell iPhones in the state? Do they have to disable the ability to download apps?
6: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, those are good questions. And the target, the focus of the bill is is really about um, having addressing free market. And there were two ways that the bill addressed this area. One was to allow to 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 force Apple to provide a another app store on their platform. And the second one was their payment system. So if if you're a if you're an app developer and you're 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 doing business with your customer, it's an it's an unusual situation where you pay Apple. And Apple then taxes or put a fees on it for the small business develop, for the small business app developer, and 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 then they send the money to the uh, they send the money to the developer. And really, we're looking at the free market. And I think the free market really needs two things to happen. One is really an unobstructed uh, relationship between the the buyer and the seller of, of a good. And Apple obstructs with that process in the payment system. And the second thing is competition, and the ability for Apple to uh, restrict competition and and pick winners and losers in regards to app developers. Uh, is really the area and the focus and the target that that the bill addresses.
3: Now, Apple and its defenders would say you can always buy an Android phone if you don't like Apple's restrictions. Uh, If you're a developer, you can always go with a web app on Android phones. You don't have to use Google Play Store. You can use other Android stores. And Apple might say, in fact, they have said, boy, if you force other app stores onto the iPhone, we can't control the security of those security is a hallmark of our platform start with the security question how do you answer that well
6: i think i think it was the i think it was brought up the most and so we are removing that from the bill the security uh having the other app store on there we will put a floor amendment out removing that part and we'll focus on the payment method i i think you know in regards to being a developer you know uh Obviously you can't move one app to another app in regards to the Google Play or the Android. Um, so again, I don't think it's a, a level playing field for app, uh, small app developers, and we're just trying to level the playing field in North Dakota. We, we want to attract, uh, from an economic development standpoint, we want to be a, a technology leader and we think that we can set up an uh, ecosystem that that uh, is favorable for small business development, uh, mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, developing apps. And, and that's the focus of the bill.
3: What do you expect to happen At two, do you think you have the votes? And then what's your next move if you don't?
6: Well, for those that understand the legislature, let me answer the first. I'll I'll, I'll start with the votes. I, I think it'll be a close vote on the floor. It's, it's going to happen here in less than less than an hour. Um it's been an excellent discussion for North Dakota and I think you're gonna see it across states. Uh again, we talked about some of the challenges uh with big tech and uh the second thing is is those that are part of the legislative session know a bill is even though it's killed, it's never dead uh <laughs> until the session adjourns. So let's get through the vote today. If it if it passes, it'll move to the House and uh my guess is is that we won't have a private hangar big enough in bismarck to get for all the lobbyists and the apple people to fly in to testify
3: yeah that is what tends uh, to happen so we will continue to watch that as well over the next hour Uh, thank you state senator kyle Davison. thank you coming up a new partnership in the biotech space backed by former leader of operation warp speed moncef uh salawi we take a look at what makes this venture different why he chose it as his next step and his take on the state of vaccines plus as another winter storm grips much of the country we'll look at how these severe weather events can impact the muni market and speaking of the freezing weather oil prices jumping as a result wti hitting its highest level in more than a year the exchange is back in two minutes Welcome back to the exchange. Since the 2020 election, investors have piled into municipal bond funds at an average rate of $2 billion per week. This comes as state and local governments are seeing credit downgrades outpace upgrades. Extreme and costly weather events like the winter storm hitting Texas right now could pose new risks to municipal credit. Joining us now with his thoughts on how vulnerable localities can weather the impact, Tom Kozlik, head of municipal strategy and credit at Hilltop Securities. Tom, uh, how much of a danger do these extreme weather events pose?
9: So while the financial impact from the the Texas freeze is unlikely to reach the magnitude of what we saw in, say, uh, Katrina or Superstorm Sandy or Harvey, it really reinforces the idea that governments need to prepare and that uh, infrastructure assets need to be updated, I think. And and many of those weather situations, we've seen the federal government step in and act as a support or like a crutch for state and local governments and other public finance entities to the tune of, you know for Katrina, it was a you know 125 billion sandy 60 billion some, but almost uh, never other payment defaults and sometimes there are upgrades, but it really depends on the severity of the
3: event. But Tom, we're in really strange times now when my wonder, is how much is the muni market depending on what happens with federal stimulus? I mean, there are so many state and local governments that are right on the edge right now with the lost revenue from businesses operating and, and, and so forth.
9: Yeah, the good news is that the, uh, the budget shortfalls are not as bad as what most were predicting they would be towards the end of the summer. That being said, there are still budget shortfalls, and on the one hand, it depends. I mean, there is a, there, you know, in some cases in some state and local governments and for different regions, uh, they are worse than others. But overall, state, state revenues are uh, down a, about 1% from March to December, and that is really going to, uh, more significantly impact areas like, you know, the state of New York or New York City or some of the areas that uh, shut down uh, to a larger degree and for a larger uh, or longer period of time.
3: Tom, how, how concerned should investors be about what's happening to credit markets overall? I mean, in the search for yield, there mm-hmm. is such demand for debt uh, that the the rates that you're getting off of even junk are, I mean, really, really low. Uh, are people thinking about these markets in the right way?
9: Yeah, that being said, it's it's interesting. I mean, and you, you mentioned in, in the preview that uh, flows into municipal funds have been significant. I mean, over the last eight weeks, we've seen an average of about uh, $2 billion a week flow into municipal funds. And so I think that even going back to uh, you know the fact that at the end of the summer, we realized that the revenue shortfalls or the budget shortfalls were not going to be as severe. Uh, but there is going to be some ground that's going to need to be made up, um, through, uh, relief from the federal government. Uh, you know, this is, this, we are still probably not at the point where we've described that as stimulus. So I think that, the, the money that's being talked about right now in Washington, that's still a relief. Um, maybe when they start talking about something more infrastructure focused, we could start describing that as, uh, you know, something more stimulative.
3: So, back to the risk question: mm-hmm. How are you distinguishing between higher risk and lower risk localities, and how important is that now versus what it's been in the past?
9: Yeah, I think that one of the things that we, one of the things that's happened is that uh, the rating agencies have been pretty slow to downgrade state and local governments, partially because uh, we don't know the extent of what credit deterioration is going to be. Uh, there's a Health officials are now telling us there could be a fourth wave of infection or increases in uh, COVID numbers in another, what, 14, you know, four to 14 weeks. Uh, That could make it even more difficult for state and local governments. But the fact of the matter is, is that if there is, you know, 350 billion of relief that comes from the federal government for state and locals, that's going to go a long way.
3: Yeah, uh, those ratings not quite able to keep up with reality in in this fast paced times. Tom, thank you. Tom Mm Cosley. Thank you very much. And coming up, this stock has been on a tear since its public debut back in November. It's also one of the most anticipated earnings reports in the EV space. We will tell you the name and what investors will be watching for. Plus, the SMH Semiconductor ETF hitting a record high today, led by Universal Display, Taiwan Semiconductor and Skyworks. We're back in two.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets well off, session highs. The Dow was up 150 points earlier. Right now, it's a mixed picture for the indices. Let's check the sectors. Energy, financials, and communication services are your leaders there. Real estate and healthcare the biggest laggards right now. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. Bitcoin topping 50,000 for the first time ever earlier today. Right now, it's back down to around the 48,000 level. You can see it there, 48,275. Shares of Pinterest hitting another all-time high today and adding to strong 2021 performance so far. Year-to-date, that stock is up more than 30%. And speaking of a good year, and thanks to the cold weather so far, shares of Generac up more than 5% today and up more than 50% since the start of the year, driven by a demand for backup generators. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
2: Hi, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. Let's stick with weather. In North Carolina, first responders have finished search and rescue operations from last night's tornado. They're now working with the American Red Cross to try to help residents whose homes were damaged or destroyed. And the winter is apparently even taking a toll on the nation's biggest retailer because about 450 Walmart locations are closed. That's mostly in Texas and in the Midwest. Overseas in Iraq, cleanup is underway after a barrage of rockets landed near an American military base. A contractor with the U.S.-led coalition was killed in the attack, but a coalition spokesman says that the contractor was not an American. And a new poll finds that three out of four Republicans want former President Trump to have a significant role in the GOP. You can watch the news with Shepard Smith tonight to see how that might work and what prospects there are for a third major political party. That, of course, is at 7 p.m. Eastern. And that is our CNBC News update for this hour. John, I'll send it back to you.
3: All right, Rahel, thank you. And still ahead, multiple social media giants are looking to join the Social Audio Club thanks to the success of Clubhouse. What's at stake is coming up. But first. Former head of Operation Warp Speed, Monsef Slaoui, is going back to his venture capitalist roots in his new gig. He is looking to disrupt big pharma with a new R&D model. He joins us next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. The former leader of Operation Warp Speed has a new gig now that his stint in government is over. Meg Terrell joins us now with the details. Meg.
10: John, thanks so much. Monsef Slaoui, of course, the chief scientific advisor to Operation Warp Speed, the government vaccines effort, now starting a new company along with uh, the team at Medici, the venture capital firm, called Centessa Pharmaceuticals. This will be funded with $250 million in Series A financing and has a new R&D model where it combines 10 private biotech companies under the same umbrella, focused on everything from cancer to rare diseases and other areas. Each one will be focused on an individual drug or technology trying to kind of create this new R&D model. So Monsef Slawi will be chief scientific officer. The CEO will be Sarab Saha, who previously led translational medicine at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Both of those gentlemen join us now to tell us about this new model. Uh, Monsef Saurabh, it's great to have both of you with us now. Monsef, let's start with you. You just finished up with the government last week. Why is this the right next step for you? And in some ways, it sounds kind of like an operation warp speed for different biotech companies. Is that the right way to think about this?
11: Hi Meg, thanks for having me. Well, I finished Friday evening, indeed my role with Operation Warp Speed, but this, this actually is a concept that has been in the making for many, many years in that the concept of uh, asset centricity, which is at the, at the essence of this company, is all about uh, creating depth of expertise, focus, nowhere to hide for scientists that really are passionate about an idea to make the medicine out of it. And I tried to apply that concept at GSK when I was head of r and I created what I called Discovery Performance Units and Medicine Development Centers, much, much smaller entities and a very large R&D organization. And that resulted in a significant improvement in output for R&D. GSK had the largest number of medicines approved and vaccines by the FDA between 2011 and 2016 as a result of that. But Breaking down a large organization is very complicated and we couldn't do it all the way. In this instance, and as I joined Medici, whose philosophy is asset centricity, we were creating companies that are based on one idea, one concept, one project. And um, the scientists left whatever they were doing and, and you know, walked the talk and came after that idea to prosecute it. We decided maybe we can now build up, bottom up, a large R&D organization out of such asset-centric organization and companies and keep the philosophy in the way we, we finance uh, and manage this organization. Indeed, at warp speed, since now we have shown that the boundaries of speed and effectiveness can be, can be pushed further than what we thought before. And Saurabh, as the CEO of the mm-hmm. company, I'm sure will tell you more about uh, uh, this exciting model, but we're, we're very excited about it.
10: Yeah. Well, so, Rob, let's bring you in. I mean, tell me about the disease areas you've decided to focus on, the assets you've put together here. And also, in a model like this, where you have all these teams singularly focused on the projects that they're working on, how do you incentivize them You know, to fail fast if, they, if it turns out it's not going to work? How do you make sure that those teams have an incentive to let you know it's not going to work out?
12: Thanks, Meg, for having us. That's an excellent question. So first of all, we're super excited to launch Centessa Pharmaceuticals. We believe this is an opportunity, as Monsef mentioned, to bottom up, create a new pharmaceutical company with a pipeline of oncology, hematology, neuroscience, rare disease, immunology, inflammation drugs, all coming together to recreate a pharmaceutical pipeline almost overnight, spanning discovery to phase three. What really is important about this model is that we're letting these subsidiary companies, the 10 of them that we brought together, function autonomously. Let them be the decision makers as opposed to having top-down management tell them what to do. They're experienced scientists and clinicians who have worked on these projects for often decades. They know the science better than anyone. And they're the ones who are gonna be driving the success of these projects. And to your question, Talking to these scientists, they're the first ones who will tell us, you know what, the data is not looking good. These are data driven decisions. It's time to step away and maybe shut this program down. Alternatively, if the data looks really good, we're now at a point where we have enough capital to quickly, in an agile manner, deploy that capital efficiently to those companies that are doing well. We're very excited.
10: Mm. Well, Monsef, you know, one thing I noticed isn't in the original portfolio of the companies you guys have put together is infectious disease. Um, you know, obviously, this is a space that you've devoted a lot of your time to, and particularly over the last year. And I want to ask you also about what you're seeing with the vaccine rollout, you know, just a few days after leaving the U.S. government. Is the rollout where you had hoped and expected it would be as of right now? A lot of criticisms about a rocky rollout at the beginning. How are you feeling about it now?
11: So listen, we selected the medicines uh, and the programs into uh, Sentesa on the basis, really, of their value. They, you know, there are uh, programs that have a proof of concept established in the clinic. They are best or first in class. They uh, they are driven by uh, great teams and you know world experts for each one of them. Uh, and that was the basis. It wasn't a preconceived idea on which therapeutic area we should be going. And that's really important because that's really should be driving success and affording maximum flexibility in terms of therapeutic areas. As far as, so if if at some point an infectious disease program comes that that meets the criteria for selection, uh, it would be very welcome, of course. Uh, My heart is always mostly in that area and in particular around vaccines. As far as the operation uh, rollout, frankly, every time I discuss with the team and I'm still in contact with them uh, since Friday, Um, And I would say the rollout is actually happening broadly. When you look at the facts and the data, along the lines that we have predicted before, we are at about 70 million doses of vaccine manufactured. We are still in line to be able to have 200 million doses of vaccine produced uh, and available for immunization by the end of the month of March, which was the uh, objective as it was set forward. I think, unfortunately, there is a lot of communication that didn't go well, frankly, in the sense that when I hear people saying there was no stockpile, there was never to be a stockpile. It would be literally inconceivable to stockpile vaccine if you have people dying that you, they should be immunized we, we were, and we continue to actually deliver vaccines immediately after they're manufactured. That's actually part of the challenge in that people are seeing the reality of complex biological product manufacturing. So I think, I think it's going well. I'm excited that up to 50 million people have received uh, uh, one dose of vaccine or two doses for, for a number of them. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the time where most of the high risk people in our population, the over 70 years or 65 years of age and those with comorbidities, will have been immunized, which is likely to be somewhere at the end of the month of March or early April, particularly as the Janssen's vaccine come to further support the rollout of the vaccination, because that should translate in a very significant decrease in the morbidity and mortality Mm. associated. I mean, the data from Israel two days ago showing on a 600,000 subject basis, uh, right, comparative uh, observational real-life study that the vaccine is 94% Uh, efficacious is, are are extremely encouraging. Uh, We we should be seeing impact Absolutely,
10: Yeah, seeing that real world impact is notable. Uh, Monsef, Sarab, we appreciate you both being with us today. Look forward to hearing about more with Sintessa Pharmaceuticals. Thank you both again.
3: Thank you, Meg, for having us. And thank you, Beg. John, back to you. Up next, Palantir plunges, Wall Street's pipes are clogged, and a new watch face. All that and more coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire The Exchange. We'll be right back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes, Kate Rooney, Dominic Chu, and Julia Borston. First topic, shares of Palantir sinking after reporting a loss for the fourth quarter. Uh, Palantir CEO Alex Karp asked the long-term investors to stick with them. But advise those with a shorter-term focus to look elsewhere for gains. Not to say that's going to be enough to keep the day traders away. Palantir was the most mentioned stock on Reddit this morning. Dom, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, Alex has got a lot of money Reddit doesn't like the establishment. Do they like Palantir? Do they not like Palantir?
0: There are so many things about Palantir that can kind of give everybody a reason to kind of stand up and be like, eh, I don't know what's going on here. First of all, I mean, it's a big data company, right? Their whole notion is they were kind of funded by the CIA at one point here. They crunch a lot of numbers. They're a massive government contractor. They're worth billions of dollars, and they could be worth a lot more going forward. If you look at whether or not it's the Main Street versus Wall Street, the little guy versus the big guy, David versus Goliath. Palantir kind of is at a crossroads for all of those particular themes at once. What I would say is that the reason why the Palantir story is so big today is because it has been a massive run-up that direct listing back in September was 10 bucks a share. It triples in value, maybe a bit of a sell-off here, but still, when you're, when you're expecting 30% growth huh. in, in your revenues, that's something where you could say, hey, you know, maybe the expectations are just a little bit high on this one, John.
3: Julia, you think this um, social media-driven stock thing is over? I mean, I was looking at AMC and GameStop today. It doesn't look like they're moving.
7: Well, look, I have to say the thing about AMC is there's actually some news right now, some fundamental news about AMC that could make People want to buy well, into some of fundamental these movie news. theater stocks, and that's that. There was a big, <laughs> that there was a big, uh, big box office in China. But I don't think that this Reddit trade is over just yet. And I think the thing that's interesting about Palantir is Alex Carp has always gone to the beat of his own drum, moving the company from Palo Alto to Denver, doing this direct listing instead of a traditional IPO. So I think it's not surprising that he would want people to take the long view here, as opposed to be focused on those quarterly numbers. And this is also, as Dom mentioned, just a different type of company because of its reliance on those government contracts.
3: If they're talking about it on Reddit, I wonder if they're talking about it on Robinhood, Kate Rooney. Is Robinhood all shored up now after that rocky patch and a infusion of a few billion?
13: They are. They uh, have raised as much as $3 billion a couple of weeks ago. They say that they don't expect to need to raise more in the near term. And so we haven't seen any outages. We haven't seen any of those capital requirements that we saw a few weeks ago. But Robinhood's traders really are that Reddit demographic. They have a younger group of traders. A lot of them are very social media savvy. So the way that you look at Reddit, a lot of those traders happen to be using Robin
3: Hood. Well, let's talk more about that. Next up, there's a problem with the plumbing on Wall Street. No, not the actual pipes. The retail trading frenzy we were just talking about, driven by Robin Hood users and so-called Reddit warriors, has exposed some clogs in the street's inner workings, including outdated procedures and technologies. Kate, what about this? It, it, I, I got questions about systemic risk around those trades a couple of weeks ago. Has it uncovered things that really could pose a danger?
13: So, that's really the backdrop. The GameStop trading sort of chaos that we saw a few weeks ago, couple that with record amounts of new retail traders into the market, the volatility that we've seen, that has caused a couple of issues for some of those back end systems for Wall Street that have been around for decades. So, the first one we talk about is really the brokerage firms in general. So, they have had website outages, mobile app outages, and analysts I talked to over the weekend say that's really because of this record amount of new traders and just volatility. So that's one thing. you got the websites and the mobile apps. The second is the clearinghouses, which we, we talked about a little bit, but the, uh, the idea that Robinhood had to raise $3 billion essentially overnight to meet those capital requirements. This new environment is completely different. Everybody's piling into the exact same names. They're very volatile. So this new reality is causing some issues on the back end. And analysts I also talked to say, you know, it did work. And the fact that they needed to get more money in there, to make sure they had enough money to cover those trades was a good thing. But there is hmm. some clogging, if you want to put it that way. Um, and so those are some of the issues. The other thing that is you know, working efficiently but has come you know, sort of from behind the scenes to very much in the limelight is payment for order flow. That's another system that works behind the scenes that we never really talk about but expect to hear more uh, with a hearing coming up Thursday for Robinhood. We're expecting Citadel to testify. So some of these things we never talk about now in the forefront and very much a part of the conversation.
3: Dom clogged pipes make me think somebody might have eaten a bad burrito. How healthy is all this for the market? You
0: you, you know how you can fix this? You know how you can unclog these pipes? You hire a plumber. You know how you hire a plumber? You charge for trades. That's what's (laughs) going to happen here at this point. So if you're talking about paradigm shifts happening in, in the overall marketplace for financial markets and everything else, we had this clog pipe issue because of the massive surge of retail participation that's fantastic the more people that are investors the better off we are as a whole market as a society the issue is the economics behind it if you're doing what kate Remy was talking about payment for order flow that's how you're subsidizing these zero dollar commissions that are happening all over the place if you are focusing on the actual client and actually getting them executed trades at the best possible price why not charge them a little bit for it and then by the way john if you charge them for it, you can take some of that revenue and invest it in the infrastructure to unclog some of those pipes. So, yes, if the plumbing is bad, hire a
3: plumber, charge a little bit more and pay the plumber to fix those pipes, John. That's what's going to fix Wall Street. All right. Uh, well, Julia, next, the podcast boom and the success of apps like Clubhouse has sparked skyrocketing demands for fresh audio-only content. We're calling the category social audio. There's a rise in similar platforms looking to cash in. Julia, I mean, Twitter is getting into this game. They've got a beta going. Lots of others. Do you think this really has legs?
7: Well, look, I think this is the new area where we're going to see all of these companies do a land grab right now. We just had... Clubhouse hit 6.6 million installs according to Apptopia and what's notable is not only is there a limit on how many people can actually use the app cuz it's invitation only at one at this point but every day has been bigger than the last so the biggest number of downloads ever was in the past 24 hours so the trend is continuing but I think what's crucial here is that this is like a new version of podcasting you can listen while you're while you're doing the dishes or making dinner or out on a walk so you could get these people who want to participate when they're doing other things. You don't have to have your video screen on like you would for um, another kind of social video app like House Party, which was popular at the beginning of the pandemic. And at the same time, you can maybe monetize it in different ways that you can't monetize podcasts. On one hand, you have podcast advertising revenue expected to grow over 40 percent this year from last year. But for these things, you might also be able to do things not just subscriptions, but also direct payments, what's called tipping. We've seen Patreon pay out billions to its creators, and we might see this new creator economy really grow within these social audio apps.
3: Yeah, Dom, I could see this really working if uh, musicians start to get on here, maybe have concerts, offer backstage passes, if you can own your audience. I mean, podcasting kind of anonymous. This has different possibilities.
0: This has, I mean, in my mind, and I can't tell the future, but based upon the trends that we're seeing, this has legs in my mind, right? This idea that you can get creators out there to charge a little bit more, have them create an economic ecosystem. I remember a good friend of ours got a Cameo, right? That's that app where, you know, celebrities for a fee will kind of give you a personalized message, that sort of thing. If this is the type of environment that we're in and content is actually king, I, I can see a, a world where Clubhouse, some of these kind of membership-only or closed-circuit-type audio formats really does take off because people do want some way to perhaps guarantee the content that they have for a hmm. fee, not necessarily a subscription, but it could definitely work out.
3: you on Clubhouse, Kate?
13: I am. <laughs> I, uh, I, they have really used the scarcity aspect to their advantage, the idea that you want to get invited, you want to be a part of it. I still can't get over feeling like I need to press the mute button. I'm on the, I feel like I'm on this audio call and I keep checking to see, okay, am I, are they going to hear me or am I a part of the conversation? So it actually took me a little bit to get used to the format, but I, it's been great so far. You've had the Robin Hood CEO, Elon Musk, folks like that. So for our own reporting, I find myself kind of hanging out on Clubhouse more than I thought I would.
3: I look forward to the Wall Street bets room on Clubhouse. All right, finally, Watch out for Facebook. The social media giant is reportedly building an Android-powered smartwatch with a release time sometime next year. It'll have health and fitness focus plus messaging features. But it could be an uphill climb for the device with Apple already controlling more than half of the global smartwatch market. Julia, I mean, Facebook decided to stay out of the phones thing. If they were going to be late to something, why not be late to that? I mean, do I really want Facebook knowing literally where I am all the time?
7: Well, John, they probably already do oh, yeah, is the truth do. of it, depending yeah. on what settings you have on your different Facebook <laughs> apps. But I think what's interesting here is, John, the second that Facebook started making those home devices, those portals, we should have known this was coming. This was a natural extension of all of the different products Facebook is exploring as ways we can interact with their services um, as we go about our day. Now, of course, they do have these smart glasses in the works, these Ray-Ban augmented reality glasses that are supposed to be coming out in about a year. I would say that a smartwatch is going to be a lot easier for them to sell than a whole new category of augmented reality glasses.
3: Hmm. Yeah, and I guess Snapchat has already done glasses, so it is time for Facebook to get into that too. Kate Rooney, give me your watch verdict. Is it too late?
13: I think it's too late. I'm rocking an Apple watch. I feel like on the fitness side, that seems to me, with my peer group, where most of the interest is, I have no desire to have any more devices, any more tracking notifications and things like Instagram. I feel like at this point, I'm actively trying to get off of those platforms and sort of disconnect when I don't have multiple phones. So, I'm out on uh, any more watch devices. Dom,
3: you said you can't see the future. I don't believe you. Will, will this work? I,
0: I don't know. I, I, like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm an analog watch wearer have been for, <laughs> for years now. But I would say this also, John. Goes with the time clip. My, exactly. In my time, I have had multiple Fitbit devices. I've had a Microsoft Band. Remember those things? I have not yet gotten an Apple Watch because all of those wearables are in a closet or a drawer somewhere. I'm still back to my analog watch. So I'm just a dinosaur, I guess, when it comes to multiple
3: watches Multiple Fitbits. You're, you're a dinosaur stomping on those things. What do you need multiple Fitbits for, Dom Chu? Thank you. Also, Kate Rooney and Julia Borston. Still ahead, check out this mystery chart, more than doubling its stock price since it went public back in November. Its earnings have the street charged up. The name and the key factors to watch are next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app, The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of QuantumScape lower ahead of its earnings after the bell today, but still climbing more than 154% over the past three months. Phil LeBeau joins me now with why those results could be among the most highly anticipated of all the EV-related SPACs to trade recently. Hey, Phil.
8: John, they're interesting because I think people look at QuantumScape and they say, look, they had this big announcement in December about progress on a solid-state battery. What will the Q4 financials tell us? Remember, these guys are pre-revenue. So nobody's going to get caught up on the numbers, but what they are looking for is progress when it comes to the solid-state battery. And remember, the announcement they made in December, that they feel real progress has been made there, that allows faster charging, uh, a higher energy density. Could be the real breakthrough when it comes to batteries, especially for electric vehicles. What's the state of the VW? Joint venture. Remember, there is a joint venture with Volkswagen and QuantumScape. And then finally, what's the path to profitability? When you're looking at the battery companies, remember, a lot of them have invested heavily, and QuantumScape has for a number of years, and they're making progress in terms of developing technology. The question for investors is when do they see the payoff? Is it within a couple of years? Four or five years down the road, that'll certainly be one of the questions during the analyst conference call, which will also happen tonight. So, as you take a look at shares of QuantumScape since its SPAC merger IPO, there was the big spike that you saw. Uh, back in early December when they had that announcement regarding uh, solid-state batteries. Since then, it's been trading basically in that 45 to $55 range. Don't forget, tomorrow morning, you do not want to miss this interview. It is a CNBC exclusive on Squawk on the Street. We'll be talking with the CEO of QuantumScape, Jack Deep Singh. We'll talk to him not only about the Q4 financials, John, but also about where things stand on the progress being made when it comes to developing solid-state batteries.
3: Now, Phil, Josh. you said pre-revenue, But what gives me the heebie-jeebies here is, isn't the market cap like $18 billion? Right now, I mean, how many three-pointers do they have to hit from half court in order for this to justify that valuation?
8: It depends on on what the technology breakthrough is when it comes to market. Um, They've seen real progress, and when you talk with people who track the battery industry... All of them talk about QuantumScape, and they say, these guys are really interesting. We like what we're seeing from them. Having said that, John, you bring up a good point. It is pre-revenue. So the question becomes, if you're an investor, how patient can you be? Can you be patient for a couple of years? Can you be patient for five years? At some point, they will have to show that path to profitability.
3: Huh. Yeah. You know, with all that Elon Musk has brought to this space, you wonder what the next big stars in EVs are going to be.
8: I would watch the battery makers. I mean, that is the one area where people are looking at these companies and, and not just the, the, in QuantumScape making the actual uh, solid-state batteries that they're working on, but other companies that are related to EV battery technology.
3: Well, we'll be sure to catch that interview for sure, Phil. Thank you. And that will do it for The
2: Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.